Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 20th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 1 to 27. The Lord gives Ezekiel a parable of a boiling pot to proclaim Jerusalem's unavoidable destruction before the death of Ezekiel's wife, serves as another opportunity for the prophet to proclaim the Lord's judgment upon his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Denzer, let's talk a little context. We're in Ezekiel 24 this morning. What should we know about the prophet, his ministry, what he's been proclaiming so far that'll help us into this chapter today? Sure. When he was 30 years old, uh, when he was about five years uh, in exile in Babylon, that's when the vision came uh, that he saw uh, God's glory there in Babylon. And that's when this priest, or he would have been a priest if he had been back in Jerusalem, uh, became a prophet of the Lord. And that's Ezekiel. And he goes through his prophecy to hard-hearted Israel. This would actually be Judah, the southern kingdom. He's been carted off to Babylon in kind of the first, uh, the, the first batch, uh, but this is where he continues to prophesy their impending destruction unless they repent. Uh, but he had the kind of harsh word from God to say, your job is to preach something that nobody is going to listen to. And so he's been doing that for 20-some chapters now, preaching not just with his words, but with his actions, most of which are very strange. And uh, maybe like last week, uh, or, or like yesterday, rather, the words are almost worse sometimes. Uh, but finally, we come here to chapter 24, which is a very acute prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the temple. And it's kind of the last of this big section, this first section that focuses on the judgment against uh, God's people. And uh, after today, we'll turn and pivot and prophesy destruction uh, and, and against all of the nations that surround Israel uh, before finally the word's going to come that is the fulfillment of what we're going to hear about today. So we have a pretty pivotal chapter today in terms of the structure of the book of Ezekiel and in the prophet's own ministry in terms of, you know, we've, we've talked before about the outline of the book and how Ezekiel is a very, you might say, classically law and gospel prophet, and he has been proclaiming a lot of law, a lot of judgment right now, and it's coming to a bit of a climax with this text. Before, as you said, there's going to be a chunk of of chapters that deal with oracles against foreign nations around Israel. Before then, there's that turn, and we're going to see what that turn is. It's going to be prophesied at the end of today's text, and that's going to come in chapter 33, and you're going to see Ezekiel's tone, his his message really shift and turn to the gospel, the good news of restoration. So a very pivotal chapter we've got before us today in the book of Ezekiel. We're in chapter 24. It divides neatly, I think, into two parts, one a, a parable, as the Lord calls it, and then an action prophecy in the second half. So we're going to take the first section first, uh, verses 1 through 14 of Ezekiel chapter 24. In the ninth year, 
in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed in her mit- is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil, its abundant corrosion does not go out of it, into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more, till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. That's Ezekiel 24, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Denzer, Ezekiel starts this chapter by giving us the date. What what time period are we talking about? Where in Ezekiel's ministry do we find ourselves this ninth year? Yeah, he, it's uh, interesting because the text kind of, it's a unique way to word it in the Hebrew, and, and that indicates that it's kind of an important date. We've had a few dates already, and we'll get a few later that are really marked out for us. But here, this means uh, in probably the year f- uh, 588 B.C., uh, probably in January, uh, and he's given a title to affix to this date that it actually becomes something that is commemorated from then on. And the date is named the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. The, 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 this is when Jerusalem, the city with the temple in it, is finally set around uh, by the forces of Babylon. We read in Zechariah chapter 8 uh, that this is among a number of fasts, about four of them throughout the year, that Israel w- was keeping at a later time, which indicates to us that uh, all of these events, which which uh, many of which Ezekiel has kind of mentioned and called out, became commemorations, uh, kind of like our 9-11, uh, negative commemorations of of mourning, days of fasting. Uh, connected with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. 
So he is to write this down, give it a day, the, or give, it the, give the day a name. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. That's the name of this day, and it is commemorated in the history of, of Israel, as we learn from Zechariah. And then the Lord tells his prophet to utter a parable, and, and he repeats a phrase that we've heard previously in this book, though I think it's been a while. He's call, He calls these people the rebellious house, which is... I suppose, I mean, it's, it's a striking phrase to attach to the people of Israel anyway, given that they're God's people. But, you know, Ezekiel's been preaching to them for a while now, and he still calls them the rebellious house here. That's right. It's not house of Israel. It's house of rebellion, literally, um, which is maybe unexpected or not ex- unexpected, as you mentioned at this point. So the Lord said it was going to be so, uh, but here we're 24 chapters in, and, you know, we've had these really ridiculously intense prophecies and these just weird to our mind action prophecies that Ezekiel's doing, and it has no effect. Um, they have not repented at all. Uh, we're going we're gonna to almost see in the second section today that it seems as if they're starting to maybe be roused and, and at least listen to him or, or take an interest. They ask Ezekiel a question for once, which is kind of interesting, uh, and yet there's no repentance. And as we heard at the end, the Lord is not going to relent at this point with them. So he is given, the Ezekiel, the prophet, is given a parable, the Lord says. In verse 3, it, it deals with a, a pot. It sounds like sounds like a, a cooking picture. Is What's going on in this parable, verses 3 through 5? Yeah, I guess this is, I'm a little teapot in the Bible, except <laughs> it's, a, it's a soup pot, right? And it, it is kind of sing-songy. It comes through even in the English, I think, set the pot, set it on, put the water in. And, uh, and you can imagine this kind of being in this way. At first, it sounds maybe like a very pleasing song, right? Uh, who wouldn't like a little soup? But, but then when he starts to explicate it, when he explains what the Lord God has said to him, that this is a message of woe, that the things that are cooking in here are, are not for us to, to be nourished by, but they're, they're going to be cooked, in fact, to, to smithereens. So, um, uh, cuts of meat is mentioned. Uh, that was similar to something back in chapter 11 that we already heard about this other parable where um, uh, the people were in the pot and, and treating it as a place of safety. Uh, and as we see, this is going to have to do with Jerusalem, the city, and also the temple as the sanctuary uh, in which all of the kingdom of Judah was trusting but trusting not in a way in which they're they're holding on to these promises and seeking to live in accordance with them uh, and and truly trusting them, but trusting them as kind of like a talisman, a, a lucky rabbit's foot, which is uh, an insurance policy, right? Where you don't give it any thought. You you uh, you say, well, I'm good because I've got you know this on my side. I've got God on my side. So if uh, I ever find myself in trouble, maybe I'll maybe I'll give him some attention, right? And you just kind of tuck that you know, that insurance document away in your file folder and forget about it, you know, for the rest of your life. That is not the way the promises of God and his, his blessings are to be treated. Um, so that's what we see here, that um, this pot is not going to be a source of nourishment or of safety to them. It's going to be burned like crazy. I, I think as we, look at, as we look at kind of, as he starts to lay it out, what's going on, in my mind, I, I see all those like... Uh, time machine or time-lapse photography videos where you're going like hours at a time at a single frame and, and you just kind of see things like uh, you watch 
you know, the plant grow out of a seed all the way up into a big tree or something, right? Or you watch the mountain get worn away by, by, a, a, by a river that runs through it or something. Except here it is, you know, you start cooking and you're cooking a soup and it's looked great. It's one of those 10 hour, you know, ramen. Uh, uh, you got to cook all the, the fat and all the goodness out of those bones. And pretty soon it's like, okay, well, you really have cooked it a long time now. Okay, well, there's hardly any broth left. You've evaporated all. Okay, okay, now there's nothing but the bones in the pot. Okay, now those are on fire. Okay, now the pot itself is starting to melt. Hey, is anybody paying attention here? Um, that's what's what's happening. And 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 you, I think if we see this as the Lord's wrath, you know, we see that He's trying to call them to repentance, and He's turning up the heat on them, quite literally, and. It falls on deaf ears, and and finally, this is no longer um, for any kind of remedy to them. It, it's utter destruction, and uh, but you see this progression; just nothing is stopping this. That is, there is no hearing on the part of Judah. That's a fantastic image that you put into our minds with the the way the the water evaporates and the the cooking picture until everything is burned up. It's fantastic image that Ezekiel is using here. I think that particularly comes up in the the second explanation. It seems that there's two explanations to the parable here, verses 6 through 8 give us maybe one aspect dealing a little bit more with, it sounds like the 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 corrosion in the pot, the meat that's going to be taken out piece after piece, and then verses 9 and following deal more with it. that picture that you just painted for us about the whole pot being cleansed by this fire. So in that in that first section, verses six through eight, we meet the title that does get repeated, this matter of the bloody city, and the blood being spilled later is is part of the imagery that Ezekiel gives. What's what's going on in those those verses six through eight? There's there's kind of it's difficult to say which of these, and I think there's a way in which both of them, you know, kind of complement each other well. Uh when you hear about blood in meat I think our minds ought to go to Leviticus 17.11. That's just the place where it's said most clear, where it talks about the life is in the blood. Uh, and, and everybody should know this, I think. Uh, Jews, uh, Hebrews, are not to eat meat that has blood in it. That's why even in modern Judaism, there are rules on how you butcher the animal so that you don't have blood in the meat. Uh, and you're certainly not supposed to drink blood. This is what makes the Lord's Supper so astonishing when our Lord you know, t- takes this prohibition and kind of turns it on its head by saying, yeah, I don't want you to get your life from animals like the pagans think they're doing, or much less from other people. But the life of God, the blood of God, well, that, of course, is something that I'm giving to you in the Lord's Supper. So uh, what does it mean, then, if it says the blood is in the midst of this city or the blood is in the midst of this meat? Um, that that could be trying to emphasize this is... This is um, this is unclean stuff. This is not something that's appropriate for God's people to be eating, and thus it may look like it's a wonderful meal, uh, but it's but it's got the it's as good as being rotten meat. Uh, so, so that's one side of it. The other is simply, and this is brought out in the text as well, when it talks about the blood that has been shed, that it is their murderousness, their blood guiltiness, even uh, that is in the city through all of their. Um, actions that have been evil, and we've heard this over the chapters that precede this, um, it renders the whole city wicked, um, that, they're, that they're rough. And I think, really, they complement each other well, right? What is the blood that, you know, the blood might sit in meat, and that renders it unclean for the purposes of, of Israel, but here we've got their blood shed, the blood that they've 
slain, is dwelling in their city, pooling, uh, corrupting it. And the corrosion that's mentioned here in our translation is a little unclear. In fact, this whole section is very, I mean, I'm not a Hebrew expert, and it's very difficult Hebrew, even for those who are. Uh, Some of the words are only used here in the whole Bible. Uh, Some of the things are a little confused uh, and seem tough. But I think that actually makes sense when you see the kind of pain and um, it is a tortured uh, presentation here, and so the language kind of takes that up too. It gets all mixed up and, and burnt up and and crooked as well. Um, so what the corrosion is, if that's some kind of metal thing, or if it's just talking about the scum in the pot, uh, or you know, we're not quite sure what it is, but it, but it, but the image comes across right. This is a filthy pot. This is filthy stuff here. Uh, it, it may look like it's for a very wholesome purpose, but it's but it's all rotten in God's eyes, and it's it's finally going to be just cooked away and burned up. I think that that dual explanation of the idea of the blood being in there, I, I think it, it, it they do both of those things go together and it, it fits well with what was mentioned. I think you mentioned earlier that the same image comes up previously in Ezekiel where where they think they are the choice pieces of meat who are they are still in the pot. They're still in Jerusalem back in Ezekiel chapter 11. and And the Lord reminds them there. And he reminds them again here, no, in fact, you're not. You are this this unclean meat that's filled with blood, can't be eaten because you have committed all these treacherous acts. It's it's quite striking how often among those treacherous acts when it comes to the the bloodiness it, or included the, the worship of the pagan god Moloch and the child sacrifice that was continually happening there even in Jerusalem. And so, yeah, I think those those two images go well together here, uh, those two explanations for the idea of, of bloody and fit well with what Ezekiel has been saying so far. But one thing that that's striking in, in well, verses seven and eight, this idea that, you know, they're not even trying to hide it. They're, the, they're just like, they're not even pouring the blood out on the dust so that it would get absorbed just there on the bare rock. And the Lord even, it sounds like in verse eight, you know, he leaves it there on the bare rock so that it, I guess so that it's evident to everyone what's happening here and and why his just punishment is is coming upon the city. Is that what's going on there with the the blood being spilt on the rock? I think so. I didn't see this in any of the commentaries, but uh, it strikes me that this is the way Jerusalem itself is going to be left by the time it's done. Mm -hmm. The glory, of course, is departed, as we heard earlier. Uh, uh, The whole temple is going to be raised to the ground. And you get the idea that now God's holy city is uh, is nothing but a bare, empty mountain. Uh, uh, God and His glory has departed, uh, and what are you left with? Nothing at all. And, and I suppose the blood of the people, uh, uh, mixed with all of their evilness, or or what's left of it, is laid out there. So I, I kind of like that image too. Is they they were bold about it, and uh, and were you know not unashamed of their wickedness. God is going to let it be all laying out there after He has brought His judgment upon them too. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a good a good point, and I think it fits well with how the text continues into verses nine and following, where you know this again this I'm a little teapot this this soup this stew that's being cooked in the pot. It's made very clear in verses nine and following that the Lord's the one who's doing the cooking, you know, he's going to make the pile great. You have this, and I, I do understand that there's some difficult Hebrew here, but it sounds like as the, you know, the various translations that, that we have here in the ESV, heap the logs, kindle the fire. It's like all over and over again, just make sure 
that this pot is going to be cooked and cooked and cooked because this uncleanness, this corrosion has to be burned up. And I mean, it even sounds like maybe the Lord had tried other ways of doing this and nothing worked. And so this is his last effort now to just get rid of this uncleanness, this corruption in the pot. Yeah. And it, it, it almost morphs un, you know, with no clear break or distinction now f- from him trying to call them to repentance through this affliction to affliction that has no end judgment that won't be turned back. He's not going to spare them. Uh, I had this happen once, you know, where you leave the pot, you're going to fry an egg or whatever, yeah. and you just leave it on there <laughs> or you're, you're uh, simmering something and then you walk away and, and uh, all the water goes out of it. And pretty soon your pan starts on fire. I didn't know that could happen. It's happened to me and it's happened to other people too. That's exactly what's going on here. Right. And uh, it's not quite clear if, if it's just talking about stuff being like, what does that mean? Corrosion of the copper or something melting off, or is it actually talking about the copper itself started to melt? As I said, it's a little unclear, but, but in any case, the point comes across that this is a destruction that's going to finally be total right into the fire with it all. Right. Uh, it's all over. Hmm. Right. And this is, this is no accident. This wasn't the Lord leaving the, the kettle on too long. Uh, he point. actually, uh, yeah, yeah, my, my, my analogy is not as good as the Lord's parable. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's doing it on purpose. And well, and it's written, it's really underscored with this last, we're used to hearing, I am the Lord. That's all through Leviticus. We're used to hearing that in what God says to Moses, but we're not used to that buttoning. My fury shall be upon you. Uh, and then he adds all these things, right? I've spoken, it will come to pass, I'll do it, I'll not go back. I, I mean, in the it, with a similar amount of intensity of more and more logs stoking the fire, here the Lord is, is putting his finality, his period, exclamation point, underline, uh, bold face all over this. Right. Yeah. I mean, those, those just short staccato sentences, I like that one log on the fire after another. I think that fits really well. And that, uh, I mean, so far reading through Ezekiel with all of the, you know, sometimes very graphic, almost vulgar imagery at times and, and very striking action prophecies, just really strange things that the Lord gives Ezekiel to do. Uh, verse 14 here in chapter 24 is, is perhaps one of the most frightening, if not the most frightening, of all the verses in Ezekiel, simply because of, of what the Lord is saying. He's not going to change his mind about the destruction of Jerusalem, which I think it, it maybe catches us as, as Christians off guard. You know, I think of, for example, the verse in, in Hebrews 13, where you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, that, that his immutability, his unchanging nature, we usually think of it, I think, as a, a comforting teaching of Scripture. And here, the fact that the Lord's not going to change his mind is rather terrifying. Uh, I mean, in this context, what are what are we to make of the Lord not being willing to change his mind at this point? I think that we can't presume on his grace. Think of all the things Paul writes, uh, and Christ himself says, too, when he's getting, when he's speaking very seriously about hell and its reality, uh, that... Um, there is a time when people are cast out in the outer darkness and there's nothing but gnashing of teeth anymore. Um, there is a time when the doors are shut and when you knock, the Lord says, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. Uh, <laughs> you're, not, yeah. you're not invited to the party and you're shut outside. Uh, and there, now is the day of salvation. Um, tomorrow may be too late. Uh, 
and, and we see this now, all these things in Ezekiel and in the whole in, entire Old Testament were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So we ought to see this and, and, and by all means repent and, and learn the lesson that we've seen in the people of Israel from this. There is a slight, I, we should probably say, there is a slight message of hope just before this. It says, notice that um, my, my fury is going to continue until it has been satisfied, right, upon you. Um, yeah. And this word of satisfaction is, is so important um, that, in, that, that the Lord's wrath does have a satisfaction point. And we know that for the entire world, this has been accomplished in Christ Jesus, that instead of pouring out similar wrath on all of us, the Lord has poured it out on Jesus in our place. And we should say also, he's poured it out for all of these people as well, even though they have missed it. They, they have not sought it. They've not received it. Uh, they, they had to be boiled and, and, the, and the logs never stopped. Um, all of this ought to lead us then to repent instead. Uh, and to trust in Christ, and not to presume on his grace, but rather to treasure it. Hmm. I suppose the fact as well that Ezekiel is preaching this to the exiles who are in Babylon already, who won't actually be in Jerusalem for this to happen, although certainly, you know, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, the destruction of Jerusalem, the news that will reach them eventually that it has happened, is going to affect them greatly. But the fact that, that he preaches this to the exiles is a call for them to repent where they are, to, to see what happens to Jerusalem, to recognize that though they are there in Babylon, they deserve that same judgment, and, and yet it has not fallen upon them in that same way in Babylon. It's a, you know, it is a, a sign of, of God being gracious to his people to continue to speak to them, to proclaim this message to the people in exile. They need to hear it. Just like Jeremiah is back there in Judah preaching it there, the people in exile need to hear it for their own repentance there in Babylon. Yes, yes. And and the remnant, I, I suppose there are those in exile who don't repent, who, who are left in, in Babylon, so to speak, or who die there, and that's the end of it. But uh, the remnant is there. You know, There may be some who will still be joining them. Uh, but in a similar place, in a similar way, this is what we think of ourselves as, as, as the Christian church. Um, we are remnant in the world. Uh, we are not at home here either. We're awaiting uh, the resurrection at the last day. So, so, yeah, this is a message we need to hear, and this example ought to cause us uh, not to make the same hard-hearted, uh, uh, foolish end of ourselves as Israel's done, but rather to repent, to, to seek the Lord's mercy, and not to presume on his grace. Hmm. And so Ezekiel preaches to the people for that purpose. We're going to keep listening to Ezekiel's preaching on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 24 with Pastor Sean Denzer. We will be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 20th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 1 to 27, with Pastor Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we looked at verses 1 through 14, this parable of the boiling pot. The Lord has made up his mind. Judgment is going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. He's going to burn it up, and it will affect the residents, the city alike. And we know that that does happen. Now, another word from the Lord comes to Ezekiel in the next section, and we get another action prophecy. We've seen several of these from the prophet Ezekiel already. Many of them are strange in ways that, you know, when he is told to bake bread over over human dung, when he is told to lie on his side for a really long time around the model of Jerusalem, some really head scratchers. This one is going to be strange for a different reason. It, it is going to be something that I think is going to connect with a lot of a lot of people, but it's going to be a strange response to it. So we're picking up in Ezekiel 24, beginning at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. Right, we'll pause there. Ezekiel is going to explain this, but just in terms of the action that happens here, Pastor Denzer, what what's going on? So I don't know if uh, others are more clear on this, but when I first read this, I didn't catch what it was saying until all of a sudden we got to verse 18, and it gets very short in its statements, and it's very clear all of a sudden, and it kind of woke me out of like, you know, all of the swirling, burning, all the smoke, I suppose, and the ashes from the previous section. And uh, and all of a sudden, it becomes absolutely clear, right? I I spoke to the people in the morning, and then in the afternoon, my wife died. And it's kind of like, wait, wait, what? What happened? And uh, and then he goes and does what he's commanded, right? To go back uh, to verse sixteen, the delight of his eyes here is is a is a way of saying quite poetically, I think, and romantically, you might even say, um, talking about his wife, that the Lord is gonna is gonna cause her to die. Uh, now, now that itself shouldn't be astonishing to us. This is what Psalm 90 says, that the Lord turns man to destruction and says, return ye children of men. Uh, uh, the death of people is not an accident that escapes our Lord's attention. Uh, he's the one who puts sinners to death, all of us. Uh, but to have this become part of the prophecy, I think to our eyes, seems pretty cruel and, and crass. 
but this is the way it is for, for Ezekiel. It's, it's similar to Hosea buying back his wife out of harlotry, uh, and, and Jeremiah also probably, of all the prophets, gets most personal in his life. Um, here we have just a glimpse, I mean, just in one phrase, right, the intimacy, the fact that Ezekiel, who seems to be such a weird guy that nobody can identify with, you know, he's got a wife there who most likely came with him into exile, uh, who's probably there with him in Babylon, uh, but but here she dies, uh, I guess of a stroke, uh, whether that's a sudden death of some kind or whether it's a, a literal stroke is is maybe not totally clear, uh, but... Um, but the astonishing thing is the Lord tells him this before it happens and says, you're not going to mourn. I suppose maybe maybe he knew who the delight of his eyes was, so it was clearer to him. I almost like the way I read it, where I didn't catch it at first, and this was kind of a general statement, right? Uh, you know, uh, what, could the delight of his eyes be uh, uh, is, uh, the temple falling? Uh, could it just be um, uh, all the other things going on in his life that, that are suddenly going bad? Is it just a general thing? You're not you're the prophet and the priest, but you're not going to be uh, performing any of the usual mourning ceremonies. Uh, but then it becomes very, very acute. This is his own wife, and he's not going to do the normal things, which we can go mm. through here in a second. Right. I mean, this this matter of the naming of his wife as the delight of his eyes, it does give us a glimpse into Ezekiel's personal life, un, unlike Jeremiah. Jeremiah kind of wears his heart on his sleeve, as we discovered when we read there. Ezekiel, really, you don't get a lot of his inner life. There's bits and pieces here and there. But right here, you do see that despite what otherwise you might think Ezekiel is kind of a weird guy, you know, here you see, no, he's he's not all that weird. He's He's got a wife. He loves her. And, and she is going to die, but the, the strange thing here and what the people are going to take notice of, as we'll see, is that he's not going to mourn. So the, the Lord mentions some of the things that he's not going to do in terms of mourning. What, what's there, Exodus verse 7, verses 16 and 17, both, what, what is Ezekiel not to do in mourning for his wife? He's not to publicly mourn. Uh, the sighing but not aloud is kind of a contradiction. How can you groan and be silent at the same time. Actually, I think people who have experienced grief know exactly what that is, uh, that you're not always sobbing, and sometimes you're just going about life as normal. I, I suppose the a cliche would be to say you're wearing a, a smile on your face, but inside you're, you're you know, grieving or mourning or weeping. Um, so that's what's going on. Uh, he's going to bind on a turban. This is probably more than just a usual hat, but this is maybe even a festive hat, which is very strange for somebody who's mourning. Um, he's, he's not going to walk around in bare feet, which would have been more common. Think of like sackcloth ashes kind of thing. Uh, uh, he's not going to cover his lips, which could mean one of two things, either, uh, something that's not clear to us today, but that, uh, in some way he's, uh, covering over his face, maybe pulling down his hat or, or using something to cover his mouth, or it could even mean just shave off his mustache. Right. Uh, uh, and, that he's not going to eat the bread, uh, that this is, I think probably the best way to put this is he's not going to eat the potluck. He's not going to have the, uh, the funeral dishes that people bring over. He's not going to eat as, as we normally do. I mean, even in America, food at the wake is common, uh, and he's not going to do any of these things. So very strange and very noticeable to everybody. Right. And that's, and that's, what's going to get their attention. I mean, it's not, yeah, 
several things that are mentioned here that are you know specific to Ezekiel's time, but we have plenty of ways that we can put this into our own day and age. And, and maybe just the easiest, you know, imagine Ezekiel's wife dies Sunday night, and he's at work on Monday morning like nothing has happened. So I mean, something to to that effect. That that's that's the shocking nature of this. Ezekiel's wife dies; she's the delight of his eyes, and he's acting like everything is completely normal the next morning that's going to get the people's attention. And they know what's happened. That's where verse 18 comes in. Ezekiel is preaching in the morning. That evening, his wife died. The next morning, he's doing what the Lord told him. He's not mourning. And that is where verse 19 picks up. The people are going to react. So let's let's keep reading in the text here. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So there is the, that takes us through verse 24. That's the prophet's explanation to the people. I think you made mention of this previously, Pastor Denzer. Verse 19, that the the people ask this of Ezekiel, perhaps is a sign to us that they are having their hearts softened a little bit by Ezekiel's preaching. Yeah, I like the way you said you'd come to work and and like nothing happened. I think the right response or the usual response is, you know, you need to take some time to grieve. Everybody grieves differently, but this is, you know, abnormal. They don't just take it like that. They don't just take it as, well, here's this weird guy. And I guess he would probably be weird if his wife died. They say, what do these things mean for us? Right? They understand. Maybe they finally caught on, right? All of these prophecies that he's been living out. Uh, means maybe they should pay attention even to this, um, but they realize it's it's for them. It, this is supposed to be some. They, it's as if they had heard the Lord say this is all going to happen. Um, they're finally starting to catch on. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know if that that doesn't indicate much hope, of course, but uh, but uh, I guess they're listening at one point here. So right, I mean it does at least. It, again, there, yeah, there's not necessarily much hope in that, other than they recognize it seems that Ezekiel is a prophet for them. There, there's that, you know, that for us. It's not just what do these things mean, but what does this mean for us? And th- they recognize that in doing this, Ezekiel has a word from the Lord to say to them, which, you know, at, at this moment, there's not going to be any real hope in Ezekiel's preaching, but that that bodes well for what's going to happen, that they recognize here's a man whom God has called to speak his word to us, and, and when the Lord does bring them to that repentance, there's going to be that good news coming. So, again, a, a glimmer of hope in what's happening to Ezekiel, even as he's been preaching to this house of rebellion. Here, there's a sign that perhaps they're they're listening a little bit. So they ask him, "What? why are you doing this? What does it mean for us that you're acting like this? And Ezekiel tells them. So he, he tells them what the word of the Lord is. He says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I will profane my sanctuary. And then he, he calls that sanctuary three things, the pride of your power, 
the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul. What what is the Lord? What's He saying about His sanctuary with those three phrases? The pride of their power means it's become like their fortress. Um, this history kind of plays itself out again uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, when the temple is destroyed for the third and final time. Uh, and you kind of, if you've read Josephus, he kind of plays on this and draws on on this past history and is trying to say, you know, you're, you're trusting in this temple, but, but you're, you're uh, fighting against inevitability if you're going to take on the Roman army. Well, this is, this is far more important than the Roman army. This is God himself, right? So the, the, the idea is that they trust in the temple, which, which seems like a great thing, right? Uh, that they would be trusting in the Lord's promises and sacrifices for them, but they trust in it, not with faith, but with pride, with, with, like I had mentioned, as an insurance policy that's tucked away that they actually give no mind to. They just assume and presume that uh, because of their own goodness, because of their own pride, I mean, that is a wonderfully double-edged word, uh, that, that it'll protect them. The delight of your eyes, I mean, isn't that the exact same phrase or very similar phrase to what he used for his wife, right? Um, and there's a connection there, right, always, that Israel is the bride of of the Father, the bride of the Lord, and and here they've been running around with all sorts of other people. Finally, they're going to be lost to Him, and the yearning of your soul. This is this is what they're fixed on. This is this is the hope of eternal life for them, uh, and the hope of present day life. And and I think the most astounding thing is what the Lord says is going to happen to it. That He is going to profane it. That He's going to desecrate His holy place. That's that should sound strange because the Lord is the one who makes it holy, so He is going to desecrate His own holy place. That that is astounding, um, but the reason is it's similar to what He did with the with the serpent on the pole when it became a false idol. Uh, he He ordered that it be destroyed, uh, and in the same way now His temple has become this way too. Think of Christ our Lord driving the money changers out of the temple too, and and saying he's going to destroy this temple in three days, uh, of what difference does it make uh, if it's become a false god, if it's been twisted in its purpose to human purposes rather than God's purposes? He says it's no big deal if it's going to be torn down, you know, so there's no stone above another. Uh, what really matters is the temple of his body. What, re- what really matters is faith that trusts in the promises of God and clings to them and, and has an active trust in them, not just one where where it's treating it as a presumption that is ultimately based on my smart, uh, 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 my own goodness, I guess. Is this is this related to Ezekiel's vision from previously in this book, where he sees the glory of the Lord departing the building of the temple, such that you know the profaning of of the sanctuary, and then calling it these three things? You know, on the one hand, the the temple, the place where the Lord lives should be these things, certainly the delight for the people's eyes, but they've made it more about the building uh, as a, a magic charm or an insurance policy, I think was the, the way you phrased it, and and nothing to do with the fact that this is where the Lord dwells among us to give us his holiness, to give us his gifts. They've just made it all about the building so that they think then they can do whatever they want and believe whatever they want. And so then the Lord, you know, leaving the temple, what Ezekiel sees previously in this book, I mean, it sounds like the, the Lord, that, it sounds like that's in the background of what's happening and what's being said here. 
Definitely, as well as their own, certainly a desecration of it by making this kind of empty shell or this uh, lipstick on a pig, right? Okay, so we've got the Lord's holiness. We're the holy people of God. You know, we're also murdering people and whoring after other gods and, and all the lewdness from previous chapters. So it's a lie. It's been a, They've made it a lie for so long. The Lord is finally going to make it very clear uh, by, yeah removing his glory from it and then we'll see if there's any glory left there won't be so that the the death of ezekiel's wife corresponds then to the the profaning of the sanctuary and then comes the reaction so how does how does ezekiel's reaction to the death of his wife how is that given parallel to what the people are going to do in reaction to the lord's profaning of his sanctuary my understanding of this is is kind of similar to the the relentlessness of the previous thing that even though we're clearly done here. You know, the meat is clearly done. The soup's finished. The pot is in trouble, uh, but but it keeps on going. Um, this is kind of their reaction, that they're going to carry on and still consider it, uh, uh, you know, we're just fine, no big deal. There's going to be no l- relenting. There's going to not even be any mourning over this, and, and they're finally going to be carried off, right? It seems a little strange that they're going to you know, they're going to have all these positive things. Surely that's not actually going to happen when they're carried off into exile. Uh, there will be mourning and groaning there. Uh, but but my understanding is the sense is they're not going to realize it. They're going to continue on um, as if everything is just fine until the very last moment. Mm. And, and of course, well, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, of course, it's not fine, and and that's and that's the point. And the the exile will show them if if not if they hadn't realized it, which it doesn't seem they will, that it's not fine. And I mean, you get you get hints of that here. You know, the sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword. the The matter of judgment, you know, going back to the burning of the previous section, comes up here again, and and all of this. You know, we get in the last phrase that we we read in verse twenty four is is done for the reason that we've heard Ezekiel repeat over and over again, so that the people will know that the Lord, that Yahweh, is God. Yeah, and and rather than doing it, rather than mourning and weeping in a godly way, you know, for their sins, repenting of them, they're going to be stuck in them, mourning in them, and and uh, rotting away in their iniquities. Yeah. Uh, so. It's very interesting, and then Ezekiel finally, you know, talks about himself in the third person. Kind of astounding, I think. Uh, you know, yeah. the Lord we expect to say, "I am the Lord." Uh, we don't expect Ezekiel to say, "I am Ezekiel." Right? Uh, Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. Um, interesting, it, but again, this comes at, at the end of all of these sections of of words against Israel, and so I do think that makes it somewhat of a climax. Hmm. Right. And so there, there's a couple more verses that we reach in, in, in this climax and, and in this turning point within the book. So we need to pick up now verses 25 through the end of the chapter. The Lord continues to speak. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day, a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. That's how the chapter concludes, Ezekiel 24, verses 25 through 27. So, Pastor Denzer, it sounds, okay, 
at, when this happens, the Lord's telling Ezekiel, somebody's going to come to you, Ezekiel, give you the news, and then you're going to be able to talk. What's what's significant in this this final word from the Lord in this chapter? Uh, it's certainly a prophecy um, before it happens. So the Lord is setting this up as a as a way of is one that we can know Ezekiel is prophesying the future here by God's command. Two, that his people around him in that day will have something they can hang their hat on to say this was a true prophet. Um, it's one of the tests uh, in the Old Testament for whether a prophet is true. Does it act? Does his future telling actually come to pass? And here it will. Um, uh, the, so the Lord has laid out this condition, right? He's going to have this fugitive or probably like a survivor, somebody, a runner, right, to, to announce that uh, it's been destroyed back there in the homeland. Uh, he's going to come to him. And this will happen. We we have this effect. The same word is used about this fugitive or this survivor who comes to him in Ezekiel chapter thirty three, which is another main division. And and you're right. Then it says he's no longer going to be mute, which is very interesting. Because certainly Ezekiel's been talking an awful lot, right? He's been prophesying. He's been repeating what the Lord says. So it's not like he hasn't been talking, but it's going to be a different kind of talking from that point on in the book. As we've already, you know, spoiler alert, mentioned, uh, chapter 33 is kind of the the shift where we move from the law to the gospel, where suddenly Ezekiel prophesies the future of the Lord's mercy and the remnant and, and all of the other great uh, gospel hope passages at the, end of the, at the end of this book. So that's when his mouth will be opened. He won't be mute, mute about something hopeful about the Lord's mercies. Um, so, I, so I would understand it in that way. And But this is all talking about, and it's a little tricky, right? So we, we it almost sounds as if this guy is coming on that very day. This is a very uh, Old Testament prophetic way of speaking that you kind of collapse all of it together. We see this all the time when it talks about the day of the Lord, when it's especially referring to, to Christ and his advent. You know, is it talking about his birth in Bethlehem? Is it talking about his cross and his resurrection? Is it talking about his coming at the last day for judgment? Sure looks like all of that's happening all at once in the Old Testament. We, of course, know it's a little, you know, there, there are some years in between. The same thing is here. Obviously, it takes a runner a lot longer than just, you know, a couple hours to get from Jerusalem to Babylon. Um, but, it, but it's all a matter of vindication. And it gives the immediacy to it by putting it in this kind of Hebrewic way to uh, to have it all collapsed into one event. Well, I think you know having it collapsed into one event, like like you're saying that the day of this destruction is the day that the fugitive is going to report the news to you. Which again, you know, of course, it's going to take him some time to get from Jerusalem to escape there and to arrive in Babylon. But to to put the two together, I think really does you know, emphasize something we've seen in Ezekiel how the judgment of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord go hand in hand within even sometimes, you know, the, the same event, how, how in bringing about judgment, there's also a deliverance inherent within that. And I think, you know, and again, how fitting that it would show up here at this transitional point where, where the preaching of, of judgment concerning the destruction of Jerusalem is about to come to an end. And then, as we'll see after these oracles against the nations that come in the middle, the news arrives, and then suddenly, you know, Ezekiel is not mute, which, which you know, certainly he's been talking. We talked about that in chapter 3. The Lord told Ezekiel, you're not going to be able to talk unless I give you the words to speak, and that's that's been the case. But I, I do think that there's a bigger meaning here when it says, you know, you're not going to be mute, that it is Ezekiel's ministry is going to transition into that 
that speaking, proclaiming concerning restoration, redemption, the Lord's forgiveness, his mercy, his faithfulness to his promises, that's really going to dominate that second half of, of the prophet's ministry. Pastor Denzer, we've got about two minutes here left on the morning. As you reflect upon Ezekiel 24, what we've talked about, help us to, to summarize, wrap things up, and, and from this chapter, help us to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to take the Lord's word seriously, especially here at the end. We see that it's all collapsed. The the actual event, the doing of the thing, and the message that has happened are almost happening simultaneously for Ezekiel. We, we should have figured that out right from the beginning, too, because as the event is happening, you know, six months away in Jerusalem, uh, so to speak, as that event is happening, the word of the Lord is proclaiming this judgment uh, on the people. Uh, we need to heed the Lord's, Lord's word when it's spoken. We need to take his uh, call to repentance seriously. We need to not turn a blind eye and trust in ourselves uh, or treat his promises as insurance policies as something we can safely forget about, tuck in our po- back pocket and uh, pull out if we really need it someday. No, we need to trust in them for our very life. Um, so here we see that the Lord's wrath is going to be poured out and his wrath against sin will never be will never come to an end until it is satisfied. Um, but the confidence that we have here in the New Testament, we read these things for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come, and the end of the age has come in Christ Jesus, who has borne the full wrath of God against all sin in his own body on the tree, and he's made satisfaction for our sins, and thus we trust in him. Uh, He is the one who frees us from all uncleanness. He is the one who removes blood guiltiness from us, who who in fact in turn gives us his blood uh, to fill us with his own life. Uh, And so we ought to mourn at the destruction of Jerusalem. We ought to learn the lesson and repent ourselves of our sins and instead trust in God's grace and uh, not presume on it, uh, but delight in it uh, and look to him for eternal life. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Ezekiel 24, verses 1 to 27. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.